guests, big brain, Brad Spielberger. It's the busy season for you, NFL off-season time. I saw you in Indy in between meetings, you know, with teams, with agents being pulled in all different directions. So I got to ask, how's life, man? It's going pretty well. I'm still recovering from uh, some late nights in Indianapolis. Yes, but this is the time again when we ask you to come on the show, when everyone asks you to come on the show, because you know a lot more stuff than we do, Hayden, about this really important part of the NFL picture, roster building, team construction. We all think we like know a little bit, but uh, as we joked with Brad before we went live, uh, he probably cringes at every single one of our tweets. It can get kind of confusing, but it's not so confusing <laughs> that you can't learn. So hopefully over the next 30 minutes or so, we can actually figure this out. If you guys haven't uh, seen the website over the cap, Josh and I are on that all the time. Big person involved with that. And obviously over at PFF, I was looking at your uh, potential cut candidates list from a couple weeks ago. You're already checking off a lot of those names already. So he's not messing around. Stay tuned. So today's slightly different show. We definitely want to get Brad's thoughts on free agency contracts that might be cut or dished out this offseason. We want to start with a bit of a broad brush on the salary cap, Brad, in general, in the hopes of, you know, understanding it a bit more. So with that in mind, and I think you understand why I'm asking this question the way I'm asking it, is the salary cap real? It's a fair question. I, I hear it a lot. I'll even get it on like the radio sometimes, and it, it's hard not to chuckle. I'll say this. I think my the, the way I try to put it is the salary cap is real, but the NFL contracts that make up the salary cap are not real. And I know that sounds kind of weird. We'll get into the weeds of that a little bit as we work through the show, but it is real. It's a real constraint. It, it has prevented teams from doing things in the past, but NFL contracts can obviously be manipulated to an extreme degree. So it seems like it's like the guaranteed contract part of that. But I think everyone kind of looks at the Saints recently as the big example. And I think when the people say, oh, the salary cap isn't real, it's because the Saints will go from like $100 million over the cap to getting under the cap. But here's the argument, though. it's We're not saying that they're not going to be able to be cap compliant and get back under the salary cap. It's like how much freedom do you have to sign some other people? And I think that's like the big difference to me. It's like everyone just says, oh, the Saints got under the cap. It doesn't it doesn't really it's not really real. Is there some flexibility issues when a, when a team like the Saints is doing some of these types of tactics? Yeah, it's exactly right. I mean, every offseason they have this huge cap budget uh, you know, issue, and, and they do figure it out. But then I think their big-ticket free agent signing last year was Tano Kapasanan for like two years, $5 million. So, so are they cap compliant? Yes. Are they actually – do they have the flexibility to make big moves? No. And one really cool example I thought was they tried to kind of circumvent the salary cap by acquiring Jadavion Clowney. What they wanted to do was they were going to have Cleveland actually sign him to the contract, give him a signing bonus, and then trade him to the Saints, which would have kind of worked around the salary cap. The league actually kind of stepped in and said, you cannot do this. It is circumventing the rules. And therefore, they were not able to sign Jadavion Clowney. So, yes, they can always make a lot of moves. Everyone probably freaks out a little bit too much. But the Saints have had, you know, they're limited. they have limitations because of their approach. Could we actually put some teams in buckets of how they approach the salary cap and free agency and contracts they dish out, like the likes of New Orleans? And I don't know if this is fair, but maybe like Tampa Bay versus what Cincinnati has done in the past. Are, are there kind of buckets how you view teams and how they hand out structures of contracts so differently? 100%. So the Saints and Bucks actually, pre-Tom Brady, were the, the two ends of the spectrum. So 
the Bucks used to not give signing bonuses to anyone. Like Mike Evans became the highest paid receiver in the NFL at the time and had a $0 signing bonus because they want to pay year to year. They want a flat cap hit for each season. So instead of with the Saints where the first year cap hit could be $3 million, and in the last year, like for Alvin Kamara, it's like a $27 million cap hit, the Bucks want it to be more stagnant and stable. So there definitely are buckets. Other teams like the Saints, the Philadelphia Eagles do the same thing. And then other teams like the Bucks, the Raiders try to do the same thing with kind of no signing bonus and everything just pay as you go. So with the signing bonus thing, is that the the thing that kicks the contract into different years versus this year? And then the, the second question is, we're seeing some teams use the void years a little bit more. I remember AJ Green last year, they gave, they signed like a, a one year contract, but there was a couple void years tagged into the uh, end of it. How do how does a team that's up against the cap sign these guys and push money into the future? So that's exactly right. So salary on a contract will all hit in the one year that it's in. So for 2022, if you have a $10 million salary, that'll all be in 2022. With a signing bonus, you can spread it out over five years evenly. So hmm. if you had a $10 million signing bonus this year, it would be $2 million in each of the years. And so, again, we'll maybe get into this, but also when you see about teams restructuring, all they're doing is converting salary into signing bonus to spread it out over five years as opposed to letting it all hit in one year. And that's what teams like the Saints and Eagles do so that they can keep spending. And actually, from a cash perspective, they'll spend more than the salary cap that year, but they'll use the accounting tool that is the cap to push money down the line. Is that prorated money? Is like that, that's that term? That's right, yep. Okay, cool. Got it. Hmm. I mean, my, my brain is jumping into a million different directions here, Brad. Part of me actually wants to ask this one. Um, let's say you become the salary cap specialist for an NFL team. How would you structure everything? Like whose model out there of the 32 organizations do you think is the closest to doing it? Quote unquote, right. So I will say that part of it is ownership is going to influence that. So you, you know, the cash is a big constraint, but, but I would say I would probably lean towards the kind of Eagle saints model. Uh, we saw, so Andrew Barry, who's now the GM of the Cleveland Browns, right. he went to Cleveland. They had a ton of cap space up front, but he still was in favor of pushing money down the line. And I believe his philosophy is because the salary cap is always going to go up or, you know, it should, obviously that didn't happen last year, but because it's always going to go up, you can kind of use that inflation in your favor. And so if you push money down the line, you could kind of argue that, you know, $6 million on the 2022 cap is less in theory than maybe you push that out to 2025, whatever. So I do think if you, if you don't have those cash constraints, I would try to push some things out. Also, the big thing is you have to be cohesive. If you pick a strategy and a philosophy, you got to right. stick with it and adhere to that as almost at all times. It feels like how good your quarterback is is a big part of this. If you are all in, you got to go all in. I'm looking at like the Packers, for example, this year is like, all right, we're going to tack on Voidies. That's what the Cardinals did last year when they thought their window to win is they added all these old guys and just threw on some void years to, to make them. So it seems like the big thing is like how all in are you right now? I Now, correct me if I'm wrong. It seems like the Chargers kind of did an interesting thing with Mike Williams where they have all this cap space and it did I see that you mentioned that they had a lot of Mike Williams contract come this year rather than like pushing out in the future Did I have that wrong. Yeah, so they're a team that's kind of on that end of the spectrum. They had they did have a $21 million signing bonus, but he still has a $14 million cap hit in 2022. They were one of the teams at the top of the list of cap space for 2022. And in theory, they could have, you know, like Arizona, tacked down some void years and, and made it as small of a hit as possible in the first year, but they don't love to do that generally. 
Okay. Hey, have we kind of covered everything from a team angle that you wanted to, or is there more? Cause I actually want to get into like position specific stuff. Yeah. The one last thing is extension versus restructure. Like when some teams are like the saints, every, every single article, it's not really like, Oh, we can cut. We don't have to cut any players to get under the salary cap. And that's all between extensions and restructures. Could you give me some examples of like when you would extend a player versus restructure and what that actually means? Yeah. So extension means you're adding new years and you're giving new money. Uh, a restructure, there's no new cash coming in. You're just pushing money down the line simply. So, you know, you're going to want to extend a guy that you want to extend. Um, and, and that's, again, I know you, you mentioned void years a little bit. And just so folks know, those are simply just dummy contract years. They're not mm. real. They'll never get played on. But teams can push money out into those years. And so that's kind of how teams balance the, those maneuvers. Have we talked about post-June first cuts? Because I think like that's a pretty large section, at least when I go on over the cap, when I look yes. at your stuff, Brad where you know you look at someone and how much money a team could save or not at all based on cutting them right now or you look at the post june 1st designation um i'll let you go into it more but just from again a novice looking at it yes a lot of these older veteran contracts of declining players have money that you can save after june 1st but then you don't you aren't able to spend that money at the top, like when it's most enticing to or advantageous to during the free agency periods. Yeah. So that's the first huge distinction is for the two guys that you're, every team is allowed to designate just two players oh, as post June one. You can do it after June 1st with as many guys as you want, but there you're allowed to designate a cut on March 16th as a post June one cut. It enables the player to actually go, you know, go sign elsewhere in free agency. It was negotiated as a benefit for the players, from a cap perspective, you carry that on the books until the, until June 2nd, but then it does help you. So we saw this with Julio Jones last year, for example. It's probably why he got traded as late as he did. What you can do, same hypothetical, let's say you have a $10 million signing bonus on a five-year deal. It's $2 million in each year. If you did a standard cut in the second year, you'd take on an $8 million cap hit, right? You'd have the, the $2 million from the first year is gone. There's $8 million left, you cut them. If you do post-June 1, in the year you cut them, You'll just take on $2 million in dead money. The three years later of $6 million, you push into the following year. So you kind of can spread out your dead money. It still hits you no matter what. I think fans kind of think it just disappears and, and yes. flies off into la-la land. It still exists. But basically what you're doing is you're just pushing that burden into the following season. So that first year, you take on what was due. And then anything beyond that's just for the next year. That's not spread out, prorated. Exactly. The next right. year. It's yep. just the next year. Yeah. Because I see, I think that people are looking at like Austin Hooper's contract, I think this year, for example. Like, hey, just wait till post June 1 and the dead money's less. Well, the total dead money is the same. It's just like for this year to get under it. So, okay. yep. That's that. That was like, a, to me, like one of the most confusing parts of all the thing. But that's something that everyone, I'm sure, that goes to over the cap. It seems like they just like hit that filter down thing, change it to June first one, and like all their problems disappeared. It's not exactly uh, working. It's exactly like right. <laughs> um, what have been some turning points for you over the last, let's say, five years? Because the NFL changes kind of in clusters of time with how contracts are dished out. Like one that pops into my head was for how long right tackles were devalued in comparison to left tackles. Then it felt like maybe, was, and correct me if I'm wrong. Like Lane Johnson potentially was someone who came up and started getting paid immediately like a left tackle because teams realized, hey, there are pretty damn good pass rushers on the right side as there are on the left side. Is there anything that has jumped out to you there or even something in the future that could happen with these positions and how they're valued team to team? 
So it's funny because I do think it would have happened organically eventually, but Lane Johnson basically was the catalyst. So the story there is he was drafted fourth overall, and I want to say 2013. And at the time, Jason Peters was like 35. So the Eagles right. said, look, you'll start on the right side. By your second or third season, you'll be a left tackle. Don't worry about it. And Jason Peters just kept playing forever because he's Jason Peters. So Lane Johnson said, look, uh, you know, uh, why would I take a discount and be in the right tackle market? I was drafted to be a left tackle. I could be a left tackle. And so he was kind of the catalyst of make, making him, you know, paid near that left tackle market. But it's funny, you know, you put that on the, the list of questions. When I first started over the cap, Jason Fitzgerald, who runs the site, was like pounding the table that it made no sense why there was such a disparity between left Jason. tackle and right tackle. And obviously, yeah, that, that gap has definitely closed now. Jason's podcast is amazing. He does this like Friday night or Saturday night for which night and just has like a a, a a couple beers and just answers like a million questions. If you are not listening to that, you are uh, severely uh, missing out. Um, there's somebody in the chat that was asking, where does taking a pay cut money go? I thought that was an interesting question. Um, is that just like taking away some of the guaranteed money or if he didn't have a lot of guaranteed money, um they can just ask him to take a pay cut like is this is like the amari cooper type of thing where they can ask him just like hey instead of having 20 million dollar cap hit we're bringing you down to 16 million because you probably are not going to be able to get that much in free agency how does that kind of work yeah so a good example that already happened this offseason will be jack conklin with the cleveland browns so he had a 12 million dollar salary i want to say none of it was guaranteed or yeah, and let's just pretend that's what it is. And they said, look, we want to drop that down to $8 million, but we will guarantee it. So pay cuts generally, they get some assurances on a lower value, and then maybe they'll put incentives that they can make that money back. But yeah, pay cuts, it disappears. It's, it's non-guaranteed salary. They renegotiate a new contract and just kind of get rid of that money. What's your view on the Mike Gesicki and previously Jimmy Graham tight end versus wide receiver? franchise tag where does pff brad fall in this it's super fascinating because the biggest gripe we have is that that linebacker includes outside linebacker and then d end is its own thing it's so stupid so like to be edge edge right, so like guys like khalil mack back in the day would bring tagged as like an you know in the same pool as off ball linebackers offensive line is one tag so you'll never see a center center receive a franchise tag in nfl history because why would you do that so as for that, I think it's super interesting. If I was Gesicki's representation, I would try to make the argument. There's no reason not to. You basically you file a grievance with the league, just like Jimmy Graham did, and just try to make your case that you're actually a wide receiver. The gap this year, it's 10.9 million for tight ends. It's 18.4 million for wide receivers. Brutal. So, yeah, we're talking massive money. But the arbitrator in the Jimmy Graham case essentially argued that the slot is still kind of a tight end responsibility and you need to be further from the, the, the tackle when you line up a certain amount of times. And based at least on PFF data, I dug into it a little bit. I, I think Kosicki actually has less of a strong case than Graham did. Um, the guy that'll be interesting, although he basically is an X receiver now, but if the Falcons try to tag Kyle Pitts as a tight end, I think he would win that argument and say, no, mm. I'm a wide receiver. Because he's an outside wide receiver. So like he lines truly, up on the outside yeah. so much. Yeah. What, could it go in this direction? And sorry, this is like galaxy brain shit. But could we then get to a point where it's outside pass catcher, slot pass catcher, inline tight end slash fullback? 
you'd think they would be open to ideas like this. I mean, like I said, the linebacker thing has been complained about for ad nauseum. Like, right. I know Matthew Judon basically filed a grievance, and him and the Ravens agreed to split the difference. So he said he was a defensive end. They said he was a linebacker. They just kind of split the middle. I know Leonard Williams, this is ridiculous too. Leonard Williams argued that he was a defensive end, I think, and they put him as defensive tackle. He got his second franchise tag last year, and they hadn't resolved the grievance from the first franchise tag. That's how – so it it makes no sense. It makes no sense. Um, One more question here, Hayden. I remember a few years ago, the safety class in free agency was really, really good. And then it went from the NFL like not handing out long-term or big money to free agent safeties, and then the next year, everyone got paid. Like Marcus May, a bunch of names. Is that just the again the evolution of football and that kind of kind of coincides and you're lucky if you're like a free agent at that period? There's something else that you picked up along the way. It actually crashed again last offseason. So it was. It was 2019. <laughs> yeah, right. It was like Earl Thomas and Landon Collins and all those guys. And then no one got paid last offseason. So you know, I do think that's more football related. I, I think that, you know, even at PFF, we kind of are, are in love with safety value and think they're an undervalued position. And I think leagues, the league thinks that free safeties that play in the deep third that aren't impacting, you know, every single snap are not as valuable. And it's kind of this, this interesting middle ground um, and, and guys that come down in the box and make plays near the line of scrimmage are actually, you know, getting better contracts. So I'm not sure where it'll go. I, I think the Harrison Smith extension for 16 million per year probably had 25 franchises shaking their head in in anger because that changes the whole market. But yeah, safeties are still an underpaid position, in my opinion, at least. Um, It's just a question of like, how underpaid are they really? It seems like when the defenses are cruising back up to those two high shells, that safety that is also still responsible to being in the run fit where he has to come screaming downhill, that guy's definitely underpaid. I completely agree. I think like defensive tackles, I'm wondering if there's fewer uh, defenders in the box, if they're going to be worth, a little bit more because they have to contain the entire middle of the field. But I think the way to track this, is it not just like look at the franchise tags? Is that basically a good way to see how much the uh, NFL is valuing each position? Like I've seen like the running back number just continues to go down and down and down. Is that like the easiest way to uh, look at like positional value across the NFL? 110%. I say this a lot. I had a bunch of people saying like, when I started with PFF and, and would maybe fire off some tweet about like, you know, running backs not mattering, whatever, and they would say, oh, you, you never used to think this way. And not until you joined PFF. Look, in 2011, Adrian Peterson signed for $14 million per year and Chris Johnson signed for $13.5 million per year. They would be the fourth and fifth highest paid running back in the NFL today, a decade later. And the NFL has told us via their contracts, they don't think the position is valuable. It's got nothing to do with us nerds on the outside. Yeah. We're- we're going in a hundred different directions, but I want to take it in one more because uh, these answers are incredible. Maybe this is a misconception, but a common theme or common saying out there is like the easiest and best time to build a roster is when your quarterback is on a rookie contract. Do you think that there's fact truth in that? Or is it kind of now once an underplayed statement, now an overplayed statement? It maybe has gotten a little bit too far, but I, you know, I completely agree. And, and you see this trend where when the guy is going into the third year of their rookie contract, because you're eligible for an early extension after that third year, those teams always spend like gangbusters. I mean, the, I mean, the Chargers and, and Bengals are going to be this offseason, but last offseason it was the Giants and the Cardinals with Daniel Jones and Kyler Murray. They both spent a ton of money. The year before that, it was the Bills, the Browns, the Ravens. They all were very active in free agency. So, yeah, at the end of the day, I mean – 
Next year, Joe Burrow and Justin Herbert probably have, what, $40, $45 million of surplus value if you compare their rookie deal to what they could get paid on the open market. You got to spend around that. Is the rookie deal, is that just like from like first pick is like in this range and then like the, the fifth overall pick is in this range? And is that like the argument why a center is never going to get drafted that high? Why Kyle Pitts was like, he better be this good because like all of a sudden he's immediately the sixth highest paid tight end. Is there any wiggle room with like the actual rookie contracts? Real quick, Brad, Hayden is so young that he probably doesn't remember the Sam Bradford area of of, of rookie (laughs) deals, where as soon as you have the number one overall pick, your cap is like destroyed, you know? And if you miss on, let's say Jason Smith as the number two overall selection, that destroys your cap room. And so I believe, Brad, Cam Newton was the first number one overall pick to play on these like slotted rookie contracts. Yeah, poor Cam Newton. I think I think Bradford signed five years, 80 million. And then the next year, Newton was four years, 22 million. So really, you know, brutal timing for him. Yeah, that, that is what it is. It's, it's these slotted contracts. I could whip the numbers up and guess within $100,000 of the picks for this upcoming draft. It's very, it's not simple, but it's, you know, it's kind of just a basic formula. And Humble yeah, so, so this is an anecdote from, from Jason and I's book, which is again, why, Yes, the on-field stuff matters, but when I talk about positional value in the draft, okay, when the Giants drafted Saquon Barkley number two overall, he became the fifth highest paid running back in the entire NFL. One year later, Nick Bosa goes number two overall. He's the 37th highest paid edge rusher in the NFL. And so it's like, it's just a simple surplus value argument. It has nothing to do with on the field. Yeah, I think there was something like if Jamal Adam was the number three overall selection, when Solomon Thomas was that, he would have been like the sixth highest paid safety in the league. So yeah. that is something you need to keep in mind with positional value and how it relates to obviously those rookie deals. Okay. Hayden, can we dive into player specific stuff and maybe we bring up some from the chat? Cause they're having incredible questions based on Brad's incredible answers. Appreciate everyone tuning in. If you are new here, be sure to like and subscribe down below. We have plenty more content ahead for this free agency window. Let's go to Tony. I mean, the Packers are, you know, pretty relevant team at this point. What about their salary cap challenges? And this was maybe even before the likes of Aaron Rodgers and Devontae Adams are going to come back. We don't know exactly yet the Rodgers number, but we've seen them, you know, restructure the contracts of David Bakhtiari. Maybe they have to get rid of the Preston Smith and Zadarius Smiths of the world. Your view on the Packers right now. Yeah, so their spot, I would actually have argued coming into this offseason, they had a trickier situation than the New Orleans Saints simply because the Packers already had pushed, a, you know, prorated, as you said, a ton of money. They, they typically give big signing bonuses because they're one of those teams like the Steelers that do not like to guarantee any money outside the first year. They try to just say, here's your signing bonus. The rest of it, you got to just trust us. And so obviously guys like Rodgers and Devontae Adams will push back on that. But they're in a tough spot. I will say, though, the Rodgers extension is probably going to clear about $15 million in salary cap space. With Devontae Adams, the $20 million franchise tag number, they'll probably clear cap space with that. I do think, though, Zadarius Smith, Randall Cobb, probably on the way out. That clears $20 million, though. Um, And then you get into some tough calls, like Adrian Amos, do you extend him, do you cut him? Preston Smith, do you extend him, you cut him? Both of those are, I mean, good players that they would like to have if they could. They have a couple tough decisions coming up. Their benefit, though, is they, they don't spend in free agency ever regardless. So we were talking about the conversation with the Saints before. You know, Are they compliant or are they flexible? The Packers, if you look back the last decade, it's like if I created a chart, it's them and the Steelers are often like their own strategy. They, they just don't spend outside their own building. When I, I saw some reports that like Devontae Adams is not going to play on the franchise tag. When is like 
when should we know? Because this is huge for fantasy football. Is like we have these holdouts, and a lot of the times it's like the first and second and third round fantasy picks that are doing the holdouts because they want more money. Uh, when should we think that like a player is serious about holding out? Like, would somebody like Devonte Adams like sit out and not play on the franchise tag? When does that player have to come back and actually play? Like, I know that there's something like uh, the contract doesn't toll over, and then you're still a, uh, not a free agent. Like, how does how does all that stuff work? Yeah, talking for all my people like myself that took Le'Veon Bell, I think second overall back in the day. Um, yeah, so he has until July 15th to negotiate a multi-year extension or, or actually sign the franchise tag. Um, I, I don't get the vibe that he would hold out. I know he had a funny quote last year where he was like, look, I, I come from humble means. Like, I'm not going to turn down $20 million. I'm not going to be happy about it, but I'm not going to not play on it. Um, but yeah, it, it'll be in July, and then you'll get a better gauge on it. Um, if, if, if he wants to hold out and, and not play the season – uh, yeah, I, I guess don't draft him. I, you know, I don't want to. I don't want to make any sweeping declarations. But you know, I, I will say other players. I, I think we talked about this last year, Josh, on, on Lily with Delvin Cook for rookie contract players that they can't really hold out anymore. It's kind of it was taken away in the CBA. Effectively, if they hold out, they won't hit free agency. Um, so it's very only niche cases, maybe like a Devontae Adams, and I do think he'll probably show up. Good, because I'm ranked fourth overall, so you better be, be ready. <laughs> and you can find all those rankings down in the description below. Um, okay, so we talked about the Packers and their situation. We slightly touched on this. Can we talk a little bit more about the Bengals since they are legit relevant now? And they might have to undergo a bit of a different way of how they bring in players in free agency. One, they never paid free agents, really. Like Trey Waynes, I think, was the number one cap hit on them last year, and he wasn't even touching the field, right? But the other section of this is, like, there was a little reason, and tell me if I'm wrong, as always, of why they weren't able to keep Carl Lawson but were attractive enough for Trey Hendrickson, and it's because of, like, how they potentially structure their deals as well. Do you think they'll always be that way? Because that's how the Bengals have always been. Or in order to be, once again, a destination and maximize the likes of Burrow and Chase and everyone else, they have to change their ways. Yeah, so the Bengals genuinely do not guarantee any money outside of a signing bonus. So even the first-year salary is not guaranteed. And so some players don't like that. And the thing is, the Steelers are generally the same way as well. We do do analysis that basically those teams do keep their players on the roster longer than other teams. So they're not lying when they say like, look, we're not going to guarantee it. We don't want to put it in escrow, which you have to if you fully guarantee money. And I think that's why their ownership doesn't want to do it. But we will keep you around for longer than the average team. Um, I think that's happening right now. I can't, you know, don't know for sure, but I think it's happening right now with Jesse Bates, actually. I think they realize they have some leverage. They know Joe Burrow next offseason. I guess, you know, he's a team guy. He wants to help. I think he's going to drive a hard bargain as well. They're trying to say, look, you guys need to come into the, the, you know, out of the stone ages. You need to start guaranteeing money in later years, giving players assurances. And I think we might see them have to change a little bit because, yeah, I mean, they can't stick to this precedent if it, if it impacts them maybe winning a Super Bowl with Joe Burrow. Josh, I'm running out of team questions. You got one more. I have one other non-team question <laughs> if you have what, any more. What has been the most shocking deal to you over the last few years? And why was it the Cleveland Browns receiving a draft pick to take on Brock Osweiler's contract? That was a, that was a trailblazer. My guy, Sashi Brown, that was awesome to see uh, the, the salary dump uh, trade, getting a second round pick, basically buying it for about 16 or $18 million. I think it was funnily enough that that pick became Nick Chubb. So it kind of worked out for him, but 
I think also, we'll never confirm this, I think it happened in the Jared Goff-Matthew Stafford trade last year as well. I do think they established a precedent that the Detroit Lions and Rams followed where I think Matthew Stafford was traded for a first and a third, and then I think Jared Goff plus a first went to the Detroit Lions just to get out of that contract. That area is changing. I mean, it's going to be cool, obviously, for me, but I think for everyone, like player movement and flexibility, obviously, this week we've had two quarterback trades already. I think we're in a new era of football. They're going to realize that they have to be more open to these ideas. And I think that Osweiler trade was a bit of a catalyst. This is like the NBA, right? Like that's exactly what they were doing. Right, exactly. Yep. Salary dump trades. Yeah. And I think, and if you don't want to say anything on this, that's totally fine. There's been this weird connection to the quarterback position where like no matter how poorly they play, they have some level of value to someone else, you know, on some level it's currency, right? It, it can fluctuate a little bit, but it's just wild that Sam Darnold played like absolute trash and then goes for a second, fourth and sixth. Carson Wentz, his final year in Indianapolis, or excuse me, in Philly, then, you know, goes for what turned into a first and then now still has value despite all that. Um, I'm not sure what the question is here, but it's just pretty amazing that we see this when money is also attached to these players right and quarterbacks since there aren't 32 out there i guess is it just in your eyes the next team has so much belief and also probably locked into their pre-draft evaluation four five seven years later so that's the big one i was gonna say i'll t- I get the quarterbacks but first off draft status never leaves you i'll map yeah. out contracts where it's two players that have been identically productive that are viewed the same way in the public whatever if you're a fourth rounder you're getting x if you're a first rounder you're getting x plus 20 percent. it just it doesn't go away it just it sticks with you teams are tethered to these evaluations as for quarterback specifically, yeah, I think it's just the belief that hey, if I get my hands on this guy, you know, we can we can get all we, we can untap this potential. I'm not sure how a team would feel that way about Carson Wentz at this point. And I'll say too, like when the deal came through yesterday and it was a third and a and a future third that could be a second, I said, okay, well, Indianapolis is probably absorbing like half of the salary here. The fact that Chris Ballard got Washington to take on the entire $28 million Nuts. is bananas. Like, it, they're going to pay him more than Indy did. Indy paid him $21 million. Washington now has him for $28 million this year, and they almost gave him the same trade. That's absolutely wild. Is it cool for you, Brad, to see the people making these decisions previously were a little bit of, like, prehistoric scouts, like lifetime scouts, to now you mentioned the Sashi Browns, now it's the Andrew Berries, the Quessies up in, in Minnesota. Um, that must be a cool change for you. And do you think, impossible to predict, but it's going to change like how the league as a whole deals with numbers and salary cap and, and just these, it's a different mindset, isn't it? hundred percent. I think it's super cool. Like, I, I mean, I, I'm pulling for Quazy simply because the league is reactive. If he does well, we'll probably see more of it. If he does poorly, we'll probably no, no one out of the analytics department will get hired for a while. So it's silly that's the case, but it probably is the case. But yeah, I mean, I think teams realize having your top scout as a GM, it, it's fine. It's one way to go about it. But if everyone's doing that, there's a market inefficiency. And there are other smart people that are out there like Quazy that can actually empower the scouts in that building because he has a different skill set and a different expertise. Unfortunately, for, for cap guys, uh, John Idzik uh, didn't do us a ton of favors when he was a GM. <laughs> so it might be a couple of years till one of us cap nerds get back in there. But we're trying. Yeah, it's, to me, it seems like two different skill sets, like picking the players and then basically figuring out how much money to, to spend on them. Seems like two totally different things. Um, but what do I know? The, the last question. Go ahead, Josh. Go ahead. No, and, and 
I think, Brad, we actually had a conversation on Twitter about this too, because, and look, running a group and and like having people report to you is difficult no matter what business you're in. But let's say you're a lifetime evaluator and you're at the top and running the draft board. Like how many times would you allow a player to be picked or pick a player that you don't love their evaluation, you know, despite maybe two or three of your most trusted scouts seeing something different than you. So like at the end of the day, I think the decision maker is always going to make the decision if he's of that past of that background based on his own evaluation, because he's the one who's, you know, going to be ridiculed or, or praised for it versus Quasi or whoever else has been in a room where they understand there's so many voices. And while I'm sure he has his own eye for the game and things of that sort, he might be a little more open to reading the room and having the finger on the pulse of like what the rest of the entire 10, 12, 15 scouts on staff might think of a guy. Yeah. I mean, they all say the draft is random, but like the amount that actually operate with the understanding that it's random is, is very low. And I, and I think Quazy is a guy that's truly going to understand that, that, yeah, like you should just trust, you know, the, the wisdom of the crowds. And, and if, if there's a, you know, if it goes against your preconceived notion, you maybe trust that. Like you said, though, at the end of the day, if you are a top, I don't blame the top scouts. They're the ones that are going to get fired or, or answer questions at press conferences. Why the heck did you take this bus? So I get why they did that, but it's a massive market inefficiency. All right, last question I had with free agency coming in. We're going to see all these huge numbers. I'm not going to name names, but there are some reporters that are just going to drop massive numbers. Is the guaranteed money the number that matters the most? I know it depends on like how many years in and we get the guaranteed, but usually it's like so-and-so signed with a team, and then the next tweet is how much money. Are we? Should we just be looking at the guaranteed money, or is it a little bit more complicated than that? So I actually love that this question was on there because there's also a misconception. There are total guarantees and there's fully guaranteed at signing. So the real number that really, if you want to just pick one that matters most, is fully guaranteed at signing. I'll give you an example. Last offseason with Kyle Van Noy. So he signed in Miami. It was a four-year deal, $51 million in total, with $30 million in total guarantees, but $15 million fully guaranteed. He would play it on a one-year deal for $15 million. They cut him before the second year because the 15, the, the remaining $15 million was only guaranteed for injury. He wasn't injured, so they cut him, and there was no downside. So, yeah, all these numbers, all the stuff they float out there is intentionally you know, vague and difficult to follow. Cash flow matters, and, yes, fully guaranteed money is what matters. So total guaranteed cap, basically. It's it's pretty cap, yeah. Okay, cool. What's your view on players who represent themselves? I actually think it's pretty cool. Uh, not to you know speak ill of agents. I think agents do help a lot and, and and do good work. But look, DeAndre Hopkins reset the wide receiver market by himself. Laramie Tunsil reset the left tackle market by not by himself. They had advisors, but you know without an agent, Bobby Wagner did reset the the linebacker market. Yeah, he actually he shouted out Jason Fitzgerald said he used his book crunching numbers. Uh, if anyone wants to learn all this stuff, I'm spouting off. Um, so it's cool. I, I think it's super cool, but I do think you do need it to have a, a legit financial advisor or a lawyer or something looking it over because, you know, it, the numbers of the deal is – look, I've seen these things. The, 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 the numbers of the money is one page. There's then 100 pages after that, and a lot of those words, they matter. <laughs> and the agent fee is typically like 2%, right? 1% to 3%, yeah. 1% to 3%. So it's just eliminating that basically from your contract. Right. And and so, you know, it makes sense. Okay. A couple things. Let's dive specifically into this draft group. Um, Brad, love you on Twitter. Love that you don't resist some subtweets or some uh, 
let's say, ominous or uh, vagueness. The most recent is this from Bradley Bozeman being one of the names out there with the most consistent buzz. Question, why? Because I, I don't see Bradley Bozeman's name at the top of many you know, free agent lists out there. Let's put it that way. Yeah, no, and I'll I'll clarify this. You know, I do like work with agents stuff like that. I'm never putting stuff out that comes directly from that player's agent. I understand there's a conflict there, and it also so th- I I didn't speak to his representation. I, off the top of my head, I don't even know who his representation is. But went to Indianapolis trying to get a gauge of you know my top 200 free agent list we put out on PFF.com, and the way we do that is initially it's purely just my projections. It's all you know based on data, but yes, also understanding that you have to adjust based on other things. But nevertheless. I then try to get feedback and say, hey, am I too low on this guy? Am I too high on this guy? Yada, yada. I had Bozeman at three years, $21 million, $7 million per year. Thought it was a fine deal. He's a solid center, but went undrafted. His his RAS, uh, you know, his athletic score was like a one. Like, he, he's not a great athlete. Um, but, hey, he's played 3,000 snaps over the last three years in, in that complicated Baltimore Ravens run scheme. He's, he's athletic enough to play in that scheme. And I kept hearing over and over again, I heard that week alone in Indy from two club people and and two agents that don't work with him at all that Mm. I was too low on the $7 million number. So, you know, I'm just just putting it out there, what what I'm hearing for the people. Hayden, any other specific names you want to hit on from this group? Because there's a whole bunch of them. Yeah, well, Jordan Davis is going to be flying up draft boards, and that's like the defensive tackle thing. Like, Do you think that there's a point where you would not draft uh, Jordan Davis because he's a defensive tackle. Like, is that ninth overall? Is that third overall? Like, some people might end up believing that he's like a top five uh, player. But like, when we come back to actually doing the mock drafts, are there going to be teams that say we could just not do uh, Jordan Davis in the top ten? So your point earlier that I really loved talking about now that everyone's shifting to two high safeties, I think it makes a guy like Jordan Davis more valuable. I mean, a guy that can truly two gap up front can just eat up space and let guys behind him operate, you know, and they they don't have to shed blocks because he's just taking on everybody. Like, I think there's a ton of value in that. At the end of the day, though, you know, I do think nose tackles, if that's what you want to call him, like they're going to slide a little bit. Um, you know, even like a Dexter Lawrence, I think coming out was a was a very highly touted prospect. Still fell to 17 just because of what he does. You know, at the end of the day, though, I mean, defensive tackles are one of the higher price positions. So, you know, from a from a pure contract standpoint, I would have no issue with it. I think that gets more into you know, can you find just a big tree trunk body out there for cheap, and and can he give you maybe you know 50 80 percent of what Jordan Davis does versus. Can you find an undrafted free agent that gives you 50% of Jamar, what Jamar Chase does? You know, I don't think so. Brad, you've given us 38 minutes of wisdom. We'll close out with this. We need something cryptic, okay? Instead of cryptic, actually, just give it to us directly, all right? What's going to happen next week? What's going to happen in 2022 for agency? Give us a name or a number that you think might shock people next, let's say, Monday to Wednesday. I think there's going to be a bunch. I think there, you know, we saw a couple of articles come out today about some names that are flying under the radar that could do well. Uh, one name that I heard uh, that teams think is, is a better player than, than PFF and also just public perception. Um, and it's at a position that we've seen in PFF has a, a slow learning curve, which is tackle. It takes some guys some time to get there. I remember we didn't love the David Bakhtiari deal. We didn't love the Donovan Smith deal. And we looked dumb for both of those. It's Chuck Sikora <laughs> for in Pittsburgh. I've heard teams think really? he is. Think he's he's kind of an ascending player. Um, looked looked better in Pittsburgh than he has in years past. You know, held up health and all that thing, and he could do pretty well next week. It sounds like. Hmm. 
What about Dallas? Like, what's going on over there? I mean, they got the Amari Cooper stuff. They're going to be uh, re- restructuring players. The Z contract. To trade Lyle Collins now. Yeah. What is like? What is going on? It seems like they are just doing a little bit of everything over there in Dallas. Yeah, you know, they do have cap limitations and they have all these free agents, you know, Gallup, Schultz and, and Cedric Wilson and Randy Gregory is going to get a good deal. You know, I think, though, at the end of the day, like there's part of Dallas that just wants to like be right and wants to win negotiations. Even Amari Cooper himself, you trade a first round pick for him and you still let him reach the tampering window. The Washington football team or whatever they were called at that time offered him like the same or a bigger deal than the one he signed for. They offered him apparently 110, maybe even 115 million over five. He signed for 100. So Dallas just seems to be kind of obsessed with like they want to win every negotiation and they want to get perfect value from every player. Look, is he worth 20 million a year? Maybe not, you know, but I, I don't know. Your, your guess is as good as mine is what's going on there. I, I think they just want, you know, new blood, I guess. Just like every good football podcast, we should end with the uh, Houston Texans. Um, I know a no. lot of people. I know. No, no, no. Question. It's a for real question. It's easy. It's easy to throw them in the gutter in the garbage, right? But slightly liked what they did last year in knowing, Brad, like they are going to be really bad. And so they go out there and sign like 40 free agents to basically one-year contracts. And then they're just like filling out their roster. And then it's going to change the next year and the next year until they like think they have a legit core or nucleus. They can be competitive. Is that how you see it from your seat as well? Yeah, I actually was trying to ask Nick Casario this at his presser because I thought it was fascinating. Like, I've never seen a free agent class that big in my entire life. Like, we we have, like, historic con- – I mean, it's, Brad, it's, that it's, tweet that the Texans put out, it said, we welcome our free agent class, and it was 40 names and 40 pictures. Coachella One of lineup. the funniest <laughs> things of last offseason. Yeah, no, I've never seen anything like that. And I do. I think he's just trying to just turn over the entire roster, get as many bodies in there as possible, you know, culture and all the buzzwords we hear. But, you know, the thing is – they hit on a couple of them. Like, I think there's a couple guys that, that look pretty good, like a Jacob Martin, like a Malik Collins. Like, they found some decent players that maybe they now can extend. Um, so the strategy, you know, maybe worked. Hmm. All right. Hayden, unless you're out of questions. This I'm felt out like of an interview. This felt like a, like I know, a job Brad. interview. We really put you through the ringer. We have never like, had a show like this where it's just no, like, go, no. go, go, go. Brad, you literally uh. sliced open your, your, your head and then ripped out your brain and just, like, yeah. put it on a platter and just gave it to us for the last – 40 minutes. Um, I know. Really I'm used to just that. everyone's favorite. You know, they get all excited hearing salary cap analysts. They just start jumping for joy. So, you know, I'm glad I could join you guys. <laughs> this was super important. I learned a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, I know you have a podcast over at PFF, PFF Now. Uh, I know you're doing a whole bunch of writing and content over there, obviously over the cap. Is there anything else, Brad, that we should plug other than at PFF underscore Brad on Twitter? Uh, there should be an article coming out tomorrow with a couple more names like Bradley Bozeman and, and Chuck Sakura for some, some, some names I've heard a couple teams, you know, are higher on than, than maybe the public thinks. And I know that I will not post any comments about any signings next week until Brad tells me what the legit <laughs> value and if it was good or bad for each of those teams. I, I got one thing. Go over to Twitter and you turn on the notifications. Brad, I have like a list of maybe 10, 15 people. Brad's one of those. You're not going to miss a single wow, one of those tweets. That's high honors. I really yeah. appreciate that. I got to stop posting so much, you know, shit posts. I got I to work on that. <laughs> I'll filter through it. Okay. okay. <laughs> we appreciate you, man. Uh, everyone else out there, appreciate you tuning in. Again, big week next week, starting on Monday. Plenty of content here on the YouTube channel. And for those of you who listen on the podcast feed. All right. For Brad, for Hayden, I'm Josh up the villa as they're up one to nil right now. Talk to y'all soon. See ya.